Well, you never know how much you really believe in something until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life or death. And so, for example, if uh, you're given a rope, right? You're given a rope and you're told, if, if you're thinking about this rope and you're just thinking, oh, I need to tie some things down uh, in the back of my truck, right? It could be any rope then. You're just kind of like, okay, whatever, that, that rope doesn't matter. It could almost be twine for, you know, you just tie it down and it's, it's good to go. But if somebody says, hey, this rope is going to be tied around your waist and we're going to go to the top of Half Dome and then just kind of shove you off, you know, that, that rope, you're going to think about that rope a little bit more. Do I really believe in this rope? I don't want just twine. I don't just want anything. Uh, I want to make sure this is strong. This is, you know, I've examined it. That rope really matters to you. And so that's where, you know, when, when these things in our life that we, we are tested, if that we really believe in it when it becomes a matter of life or death. And now for us, as we consider our belief in Jesus Christ, is it really a matter of life or death for us? Because what's so interesting that we will see today as we begin this series called True Life, Real Love, through this book of 1 John, the people that, that Dave alluded to, the people that this book was written to, this was a matter of life or death. Like this whole thing of who Jesus is, their belief in him, and the way that their lives are lived, it affected their lives in that extreme kind of way. And I think for us, we need to get ourselves into that kind of a mindset. Does our belief, does it affect how we live? Is this really, you know, does this really matter to us in that extreme way? And so what I, I think for us, as we, as we look into this pretty amazing letter, I want us to, to take a step and to think about the background of it. Like who is it written to? Why did he write it? Why did John write this? And I think it'll help these words not just be words, but for them to kind of leap off the page for us, to, to spring to life for us in some way as we, as we read through them. And so a bit of that context and, uh, is that John the Apostle, this guy that was an actual disciple of Jesus, who described himself as the one whom Jesus loved, that John wrote this. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He saw him. He touched him. All of that. And he wrote it most likely from the city of Ephesus to the churches in that surrounding area that we would call Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And it was somewhere approximately 90 to 95 AD, which you can remember as the the first century grunge era, okay, the early 90s. Does anybody get... I just thought I'd drop that there for you. Uh, okay, so you'll hate the joke now, but you'll hopefully remember it later. But uh, so that's, that's when it's written, and you can see just a, a map up here where you have this whole region of Asia Minor, bottom right of the map over there is, is Israel's just below that, just to give you some context. But then as we zoom in a little bit more, hopefully you can see Ephesus in the middle, and then all these surrounding cities in this area. And this, this whole part, this province of Asia, that is basically where we go. We go to almost all those cities there in the middle of the map uh, when we go to Turkey next year. Uh, so that's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, that's who John's writing to. And the, the, whole, the biggest part of the context for them to understand is that they are living under the influence and rule of the Roman Empire and Hellenistic 
culture or Greek culture. So these people, I mean, they had the Persian Empire sweep through them and conquer them. Then they had the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, sweep through and conquer. Then they had the Roman Empire sweep through and conquer. And these, they've had all these earthquakes, and it's just been a pretty crazy, tumultuous time for these people to, to live through. But now they've got all of this influence of Greece and Rome in their lives. And a, a big part of that is... Uh, is entertainment. This was a new thing of all these plays and the theater and games, the gladiatorial games. And uh, even when it comes to, to other things like these just wild parties and sexual practices that would take place within the worship of all of these gods, these Greek and Roman, you know, mythological gods that they would worship. And, you know, it's all those, whether it's Greek or Roman, but you got Zeus and Jupiter and Dionysus and Athena and Artemis and all these gods and things that you just think of these stories that you've learned about in school. For them, these were, to them, these real gods that they would worship and their whole world was based around the worship of these gods. And even if they would have a successful business if they'd have social networks, if they'd be able to go to a good doctor, they'd all be based around making sacrifices, even buying things in the marketplace, based around sacrifices and worship that they'd have to give towards these gods. And so all of your life has to be lived in that kind of a way. And so for these Christians, now they have to learn what does this mean for us to, to live here and how do we survive, let alone thrive, in the midst of all of this uh, that's going on. Now, what you also have is this group that we will just, for lack of a better term, call the secessionists. There were these pre-Gnostics. Maybe you've heard this word Gnostics before, but if you hadn't, basically, who these people are, the group of people that believe that our flesh is inherently evil, that our physical nature, okay, that is inherently evil. And so, therefore, they don't believe that Jesus actually came in human form, in the flesh, they, you know, this whole doctrine of that Jesus is fully God, fully man, they say no, they take out the man part, all right? And that's a huge, massive heresy. You start to run into a lot of problems of a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness or a Jesus that could actually live a perfect life as one of us and then die the perfect death for the wrath of God to come upon him. So you stop believing in the, the flesh and the humanity of Jesus and you start really destroying and distorting everything. And so these people are coming and luring people away from the church that John is leading in this area. And he's getting into Papa Bear mode and he's getting a little bit angry, I think, with some righteous anger about what's happening as his people are lured away from the true Christ. And then finally is there's this guy uh, named Domitian, the emperor in around the, the season that, that this is written. And Domitian ruled from 81 to 96 AD. Now, Domitian was a pretty bad dude, okay? He persecuted everybody, and so that did include Christians, and he persecuted Christians because he called himself Lord and God, and yet you were to worship him. You were to make, you know, light incense to him before you could buy or sell things in the marketplace. He had a massive temple in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was his neochorus, which is the word that means his place of worship, the place that you would go, the primary place to worship Domitian, this, 
this emperor god who was living at the time and ruling the Roman Empire, he was in Ephesus. There's this massive temple, and there's a huge statue even of him that you can see there, uh, or these parts of it where he would stand and stand over the whole city. And it was huge. You can see my head here is about the size of his eye socket, okay? So he would stand, though. You'd come into the city, and you see this massive statue ruling over the city, and it's okay, you know, you got to bow. you got to look up, and you got to bow down before Domitian. But he would persecute people he would uh kill people and he was even uh like what he had what what happened was called damnatio memoriae which was that his memory was to be blotted out from the roman empire because even the roman empire thought of him as that evil okay so this is a bad dude and he's the one that's reigning in this time and so then you've got all that as the backdrop and then we go into, I want us to look at John 1. This is not 1 John 1. This is John 1, okay? The, the Gospel of John. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when John is talking about the word here, he's talking about Jesus. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so then now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John 1, and we're going to look at 1 through 4 today. With all of that as the backdrop, all of what's going on there is really the backdrop to this whole book, but then into this passage Really have in mind, too, what he said in John 1. It says this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. All right. So you look back, you got all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with a spoken word, right? God created the heavens and the earth with a spoken word. And then it says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And he created all things, and all things are from him. And now you have this word of life, which is Jesus. And this word of life is all about God speaking to us through the incarnate Christ, through Jesus in the flesh, and then he says to his, his disciples, like, write down the things that he's done. And we have a chance now to read about it in this book. And then we are called, it says then, to proclaim it to others. We need to testify of it to others so that they could have fellowship with God and then we can have fellowship with one another. And it's all got joy in, in it. It's all joyful at the root of it. It's all coming out of our joy in Christ. And so that's that backdrop. We've got to look at it in that way. We've got to have right belief about Jesus, and we need to be able to experience fellowship 
with one another. So a few points for us as we go through this just short little uh, awesome section of God's word. One, we need to experience the true Jesus, not just know about Jesus. We need to experience the true Jesus, not just know about Jesus. Okay, and so again, the part of uh, this passage that's, that's talking about that, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've looked at, what we've touched. You can see here where John has experienced Jesus, right? John, again, one of the actual disciples of Jesus Christ. And he's got all these people saying, no, 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 no. He's not physical. You know, he didn't come in the flesh. And he's like, wait a minute. I, I saw him. I heard him. I actually touched him. He felt like flesh to me. You know, that sort of a thing. It's this amazing uh, moment where you can have John the disciple speaking against this heresy from one who actually walked with Christ. And, and I think then for us, there are going to be many who will distort the truth of who Jesus is today. We might not be dealing with this Gnostic heresy of the flesh being evil, but we're going to deal with all sorts of, of other kinds of heresies or other ways that people will try to distract us from the truth of who Jesus is, even to another nice-sounding version of who they would say Jesus is. And so I would think that some of these ways that people distort the truth uh, even can go back to the lie of Satan in the garden in Genesis 3 when he would say things like, hey, you, you'll be like God. You know, eat of the fruit. You'll be like God. That there's so many people today that think they can be like God. That we get to decide what truth is, right? That we can decide, not, not what the scriptures say, but we can decide, oh, no, this is what truth is. This is what, uh, you know, to follow God looks like, what morality looks like, what our behavior should be like. And we can just adjust it to whatever our, our day has told us is the right way to go. And whatever makes us seem like nice people in the view of culture, fitting in with culture, hey, if you're God, then do whatever you want, right? That's that lie that is distorting, I think, the truth of God's word today. Another lie of Satan was that your eyes will be opened, right? Your eyes will be opened beyond God. It doesn't really matter about, you know, the, the Jesus of the scriptures. It's like, ah, it's just a jumping point, really, to do, like, kind of whatever we want. Have a spirituality that's an enlightened, weird thing, you know? And so we have to be aware of these sorts of distractions and distortions, and as well as all the cults of Christianity that have been around for a long time, like Jehovah's Witnesses or even Mormons. And, you know, what's, what's crazy is with, with Mormons... You all probably have a Mormon friend who is most likely one of the nicest people that you know, right? And they are actually living out their faith, I would say in some ways a lot better than we are living out ours. Because they're committed, they're, they're in it, and they are very kind and gracious people and they know what they believe. But the thing of, of what that is, the definition of a cult of Christianity, Christianity is something that takes this belief about Jesus and then tweaks it and twists it and distorts it to remove something that's core, kind of like those Gnostic, you know, heresies. 
that where they would say then that this doctrine of the Trinity of, of God in three persons is not true, that Jesus is, is not the God, you know, it's just kind of like, it's a sub level kind of a thing. And so, you know, that's where you've got a distortion of the truth of who Christ is. And so we have to be aware that we have to experience truth of who Jesus is, this true life, this true belief of the true Jesus. And then we need to have a real sense of love of Jesus, real love of Christ, this fellowship with God, this knowing what, when he talks about this eternal life, what is he talking about here? That we have a love of God and that we can have then fellowship with him and eternal life with him. And eternal life is not just the future. Eternal life starts now, because eternal life, as defined by John himself in his gospel in 17.3, it says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That when we come to this point of belief in Jesus Christ as the one and only true God, that we are beginning eternal life at that moment, that we have eternal life and we're experiencing that with him and we're experiencing him, not just knowing about him. And then out of that, we now, out of that joy because of that, we are joyfully compelled to tell people about what we have experienced. Okay? We, we don't just tell people about what we have heard even or have read about, but we tell people about what we've experienced. And not just out of duty or obligation, but because of the joy that we have of having fellowship with God, that we would want to. And so you see in 1 John 1, 3a, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And so it's that real love. True life and real love is what motivates us to proclaim about Jesus. It's like this. Imagine when you have something that brings you a ton of joy, right? Just something in your life that, that you love. And you love to be able to like, tell somebody. Maybe it's even a song that you've heard. And you love that song. You're like, oh, you got to hear this song. And you play it for your friend. And they're hearing it. They're, like, they're loving it, right? You're, sh- you're sharing that with them because... It brings you joy. You want them to hear it. And then when you see them catch the joy of the song, you're pumped up, right? It's just, we do the same thing with food, like a restaurant that we love. Like just this last week, I had a friend of mine uh, come down from Sacramento to go to one of my many U2 concerts I attended this last week, which were wonderful. And I'll explain to you why that's biblical in a little bit. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> but he came down and we, I, I took him to this place called Santuca Ramen. It's my favorite ramen place that there is. I think it's the number one. You might have a disagreement, but whatever. And I think it's the best. And I took him in, uh, and we go, and I'm excited, and he gets this, like, beautiful steaming bowl of ramen in front of him, and right away, he pulls out his phone, not to food blog Instagram it, but to, he took a picture so he could send to this Japanese friend that he has that lives up in Sacramento, and he texted her a picture of that and the, and the name of the place, and, because he was so pumped on it, and she was all pumped on it, was excited oh, I know that place. It's amazing. And so there's just this joy that I had in this good thing that I could share with him. He's sharing it with others, and it was awesome, right? And, and so that's the, the kind of way that we want to be able to share about Christ, what we have experienced. John was sharing what he had experienced firsthand, not just something he'd read about. And so for us, I want you to be able to do that same thing, to share with people about Jesus out of joy and also like out of the way that you've experienced him. And I know like for me, there is, 
times where I remember my freshman year in high school, this moment of worship where I was worshiping in my youth group and just had this overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit kind of just moving me in this way of just being filled with the joy of God and, and who he is. And I kind of never had that before. I was like kind of doing my thing as a good Christian kid. And I just remember even this, this, this worship experience of just being this radical love for God that I had in that moment. Or, or stories of, of even spiritual warfare, some we've shared in this last series of seeing God just do some radical things of, of healing people, even of demonic oppression or seeing uh, just or even sensing God speak to me when I was in college about becoming a pastor and then living that out and the experience of, wow, what God was, uh, had spoken to me is actually being fulfilled, you know, and, and even hearing about prophecies of that from people when I was a kid or God healing me of cancer when I was an infant, like just crazy stories that I can know I've experienced these things firsthand and you know, and I've read the truths of the scripture and experienced these, but I've also had my own life and I want to share that with others. And so when we share about Jesus, let's be people who share about what we've experienced, not just what we've read. Okay. So then after we're, we're beginning to share that we're living like we're living that like fellowship with God. We also want to know that we can live together. This not just fellowship with God, but fellowship with one another as this family, this family that's full of joy together because of that fellowship with God. And so here's the passage that talks about that, which also has the proof text for why you too should be your favorite band. It says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. <laughs> Dave really liked that a lot, he said. He's going he's gonna to remember that. Ah, okay, so that you two may have fellowship with us. But no, just in that real way, that, that they're sharing that, they're proclaiming that with people because they want those people to have fellowship with God, but also fellowship with them as this family together. He says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This completed joy comes from fellowship with God and then fellowship with one another. And the thing is, for them, okay, these people at the time of the early church, real love for one another existed just to survive under the rule of the Roman Empire. They had to have real love for one another. I mean, remember I talked about how you could not have a successful business without making sacrifices and offerings to false gods. You could not go to the best doctor in the city unless you made sacrifices to the false god. You would not have a friendship group outside, you know, like of just a good social network of people if you did not participate in these wild parties and sexual practices that were part of worshiping Dionysus. Okay? All of these things. Like, your life was radically affected. And so they had to band together. And so it's a little bit of a different time and, and place, but that's why you would read in Acts 2 where the church comes together and why they live in that kind of communal way that they did. It wasn't for fun, okay? It wasn't because they thought it would be a nice thing to do. It's because they would die without each other. Their belief in Jesus became a matter of life or death to them. And they bonded together as a family and as a community. And they lived the Christian life for one another and with one another. And so that whole thing for God, for one another, it was lived out in a radical way. 
And I think, you know, we can get glimpses of that today, but I think we're inching closer and closer to that as time goes on. We need to change as a church. We need to learn how to be connected in this kind of a way, the way that these people were. It's my hope and vision for Calvary Church that we could be more like that, bonded together, having that kind of fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship in here is a Greek word that maybe some of you have heard before. It's koinonia, right? Koinonia fellowship. It's like one of those words that people used to, to name their, you know, like their Sunday school class or whatever, you know, the koinonia group. And, and it's like one of those sorts of words. But it, it's, a, it's a really rich, incredible word for us to understand when you think about the context that it's being lived out in in Asia Minor, right? Where there is this... This fellowship was this close association it talks about. Part of it is emphasizing what is common between them. So what's common between them is not social class or, you know, who they are, but it is about Jesus. Jesus is what's common between them. And so for us here, we might have a lot that's different, but Jesus is what's common. And it had this kind of fellowship was about participation, sharing, contribution, partnership, okay? It was not a spectator sport to be a Christian in the first century. You had to be all in, participating, okay? I think we can begin to think of this as a, as a, as a spectator sport. No, it's not. We can't just sit on Sundays and watch other people do Christianity or read reports of people that are serving the least of these while we're comfortable, right? No, we, we can't just come and not really have to get in deep with the people that sit around us or even know their names. We need to know each other, pray for each other, hold each other up, you know, be praying for each other as we go to work in a culture that opposes Christ. How do we do that? How do we raise our kids in such a way that they are going to be followers of Jesus in the next 10 years. We need to do that together, bonded, partnering, contributing. It's all a shared labor, right? It's shared work together. Yeah. Amen. Come on. But but it, it all comes from this, this mystical union, right, that we have with Jesus. We have this union with Christ that then becomes this thing that binds us together. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that, that does that kind of work in us. And we enjoy that beautiful gift that we have in Christ together. That's why we have to do this together. It's not me. It's we. Because we each grow as individuals to help us all grow. Okay, I grow in Christ, not just so I can have a good personal relationship with Jesus. That's not why I grow. I grow in Christ so that we as a community all can have a close personal relationship with Jesus together. That's the Christian life, people. Okay, it's not just me and God only. Okay, it's not just you and me. You know, only you and me here now, you know, as the song would say. It's all of us here together. We're doing this together. And so as you grow, be excited to help each other grow. That's what it's all about. And you think about what's, you know, things, there's things that are fun, you know, as, or might be kind of okay as just a couple people, but when there's a lot of people in it together, it's awesome. I don't know if you've ever, ever tried to play softball with like three people. 
Not really, right? It just doesn't really work. You need a lot more than that. It's kind of same with playing football. I remember on the street when I was a kid, you'd want to play football with the other kids. And if we only had three, it's like, oh, I guess we got like one all-time QB and then two people going back and forth, you know? And it's just not as cool as like a bunch, a bunch of people playing that thing together, board games by yourself. Not that cool, right? Like you need to have some more people to play. But I think the, a couple of the ultimates are uh, that you need a good group of people. One, crowd surfing. You know, I mean, it's going to be a bummer floating, you know, like over the crowd, crowd surfing. It's not that fun with like two people. You're going to fall. And then the second is wedding reception dancing. Am I right? Okay. Wedding reception dancing. When there's four people on the dance floor, when they call everybody out, it's just lame. And you're just bummed out and you're awkward and everyone's just sitting around watching. It's like, come on, get up and get in the middle. Let's do this. And then it becomes fun. And so for me, I had this crazy, uh, bringing together of both crowd surfing and wedding reception dancing at my wedding. And you can see a, a grainy picture of it uh, where that's me at my wedding getting crowd surfed. And this would not have been fun with two to three people. Uh, and yes, it does say Yahoo on the bottom of my shoes, which are creepers. Okay, so... Uh, but, you know, this was awesome because there's all these people participating in it together, right? And you know who that brought joy to? This whole, like, everybody participating... It brings joy to the bride and groom. Like when everybody comes out and, and dances with them in the middle, right? It brings them joy. And I think when we all go in on participating in our relationship with Jesus and we're doing that together, that brings joy to Jesus as he sees us all in it, going for it, not just watching from the sidelines, but getting in the middle of the pack and serving and sharing and proclaiming and worshiping and giving and doing all of those things that are part of this Christian life. And if we don't, you know, do it, it gets pretty lame, (laughs) really. And there's a couple of passages, I think, that help show us even a little bit more of what this looks like, because we are different people, right? But you think to the disciples, Matthew, this tax collector, Peter, this hothead fisherman, Simon, the zealot, like these dudes would not hang out together normally, okay? They, they wouldn't want to be friends with each other. They wouldn't even talk to each other possibly, okay? Especially Matthew and Simon. I mean, it's going to get really ugly. But they come together with Jesus, and Jesus is that common bond that joins them together. And you have then in the early church... You have all these people that are of different ethnicities, different social structures, uh, whether they're slave or they're free or they're rich or whatever, and you see that they all are somehow able to come together in Christ. But that's why you'll read things like in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Colossians 3.11, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So these national differences, these ethnic differences, these religious differences, he says, hey, in Christ we are one and we are all unified together. And that was the beauty of the early church. Come in my house. I don't care if you're a slave, if you're, you know, a senator in the Roman Empire. I don't care if you're a man or woman. Come into my home. Eat with me and let's worship Jesus together. And I pray for us to be that way. 
May we open our homes to one another. May we actually sit by each other in church. May we, you know, know each other's names. May we be part of one another's lives. Because in this room, we have lots of different people. There's lots of different ethnicities. There's Hispanic, white, black, Asian. There's poor people. There's middle class people. There's maybe some of the richest people in Orange County sitting next to some of the poorest people in Orange County, you know? And that's actually awesome. I think that's awesome to see the white collar, blue collar. It doesn't matter. We are all one in Christ. We all come together and have that in common. And we need to say, God, I want to be in fellowship not just with you, not just with my core, closest group of friends, but I want to be in fellowship with this local church community to be one in Christ and to see how can we then, as that community, change the world. Because in Ephesus, at the end of Domitian's reign, okay, as he had ruled and reigned and persecuted this place, after he died, in Ephesus, it turned to be 90% Christian. Unbelievable, the way that how did these people, right? How did they possibly, you know, overcome these incredible odds that are against them of being persecuted in the way that they were and of being so radically different and being uh, in this influence of this culture that would go completely against God as the one true God? And so they did. And I think a lot of it is this, this kind of fellowship with one another, this overcoming differences and boundaries and having a real love for one another that was displayed through love and good deeds and proclaiming truth. True life, real love. And so we now are going to respond in such a way that is that we want to then uh, receive communion. We want to participate as we take, um, as we receive the Lord's Supper, we want to commune with God and we also want to commune with one another as we do that. So I'm going to actually make us do something a little bit uncomfortable, okay, as we do it. And it is going to be one of those moments where you're probably going to have, like, an initial reaction of, like, <laughs> okay? So I'm just going to be real about that. Uh, but what I'm going to ask you to do is I want everybody to stand up, grab your stuff, get your purse, your keys, your Bible, whatever, okay? And I want us to fill in these front sections, no gaps in the seats, you know, that we are all actually shoulder to shoulder together. So go ahead. Come on down. All right. Come on to the middle and to the front as much as possible. No empty seats. All right, come on. You can get a little unruly, be a little less polite. Just shove your way in. <laughs> yeah, we can fill in these sections too. It's fine. Yeah. We've been doing some of this kind of stuff, right, a little bit. We've been making you move around and, and all that. <laughs> but because I want to talk about this as you're just finishing filling up these fronts. Don't, 
Don't give up. Keep coming. Keep coming. You can do it. So we want our church to be bonded together more. We want you to be sitting shoulder to shoulder with people more. Part of that is as you look around, we have room for more. And we are called by God to proclaim what we have seen and heard, what we've experienced, share that with someone. And so I want to encourage you to share with someone, to invest in them, and then invite them into a relationship with Christ and into a seat in this room where we can then have fellowship with one another, right? That's the whole thing. Fellowship with God and then fellowship with one another. And so I just challenge you to be investing in people and then invite them into that relationship with God. And we want to be people who together we remember what Christ has done because we can't have fellowship with God without the work of fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, on the cross. What he did on the cross when he took the wrath of God and the sin of the world upon himself, that he paid that price and he got rid of the debt that we owed of eternal death and has given us eternal life in him and with him forever. And the power of the resurrection is a beautiful, amazing thing. And so we remember that. That's what we're doing. We're remembering that together. But we're also, you know, breaking bread as a family together, right? We're, we're participating in this meal together. And so I want us just to feel that sense of bonding and, and, and unity together as we do this. And then, so the, the elements will be passed, and then I'll come back up and wait to take it until I come back up. And then we'll take together, and then we're going to be able to stand and just sing loud, like worshiping together, okay? So let me pray as we remember Christ. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gift of Jesus and that we together can enjoy that gift, Lord, as a community, as a family. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would begin to break down the walls that we have between each other. Some are walls that are, that are difficult to break through that maybe have we have history with people that we need to ask forgiveness for. Some are just barriers of awkwardness or, Lord, I don't know. But God, I pray that you'd break those barriers down. I pray that we would become one. I pray that, Lord, we would experience the kind of unity that, that you have, Lord. I pray that now we would mostly worship and remember you, what you've done, grateful for the gift of the cross. Thank you for taking the wrath upon yourself. Thank you for shedding your blood for us. The gift of that shed blood is beyond compare. And we will not forget. In Jesus' name, amen.